Would you turn in your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 9, please? And take a look at some uh, prophecy of the Old Testament and uh, fulfilled prophecy, but also some things in there that are yet to come. And uh, I want to share this because it's Advent season, and this is the third weekend of, of Advent. And uh, although we don't, we don't do the Advent candles and we haven't done this traditionally as a church before, it just is fun this year to be looking at, um, at the, the, the build-up to uh, Christmas. And uh, as you know, we, we do have Christmases on a Sunday this year, and we are having service on Sunday morning. So for those of you who are, um, who are brave enough to get out, uh, you, I, I should probably make it a pajama day that you could come to church in your pajamas, but I think that would be a little weird. So um, uh, we are going to have regular service on Sunday morning, but there will be no breakfast before church, and we're not going to have a worship rehearsal and all of that. So we'll, uh, I'll just lead uh, at some, some beautiful, familiar carols with my guitar and, uh, and we'll have an abbreviated service, but we'll honor Jesus on the day of his birth. And, uh, and we'll remember him and we'll put him first. And so I invite you to do that with your family as well. But as we move towards Advent, it's an opportunity for us to think about the promises of God fulfilled. Last week we talked about loyalty. And uh, I don't know if you guys can remember last week's sermon, but I do. And, uh, <laughs> and last week I talked about tents. And, um, and we talked about the tent of meeting. We talked about the Lord's, uh, the Lord's instruction to uh, dwell in tents. And um, that's, uh, it was an intense sermon. <laughs> and, um, and anyway, uh, today I want to actually want to harp on that a little bit more because there's a passage of Scripture in Jeremiah 35 that, uh, that I think uh, deserves a little of our attention. But before we get there, we want to talk about this theme of loyalty and hopefully see it woven in. And uh, I want to talk about God's loyalty because it's one, of his, it's one of his attributes, loyalty. The Father is loyal to the Son. The Son is loyal to the Spirit. The Spirit is loyal to the Father. They're all loyal together. There's this ancient symbol in the uh, Celtic faith of a, what's known as a triquetra. It's, a, it's three half circles that are joined together in perpetual a movement, as it were. And maybe you've seen the symbol before. Some folks think it's a pagan symbol, but it was uh, perhaps in some uh, time, in, in ancient times past, it may have been used as, as some kind of a pagan symbol, but it was either adopted by the Celtic church or perhaps it was invented by the Celtic church. We don't know, but the triquetra was this idea that the three, three half circles that join the three parts of the of the Trinity, the three persons of the Trinity together in perpetual love and loyalty to one another. And so it's, it's just this constant dance, this constant movement, Father to the Son, the Son to the Spirit, the Spirit to the Father. The triquetra is this three-leafed semicircle thing. And the um, reason that I tell you about that is uh, because I think the attribute of loyalty is profoundly important in the church. It's important for us in our personal relationships. Obviously, in a family, loyalty is critical. Uh, not, not the kind of loyalty that you might have in, in an Italian mob family, perhaps, you know, sort of godfather loyalty. But, but, um, but loyalty in family is, is, is it's, you can't have family stay together without loyalty of some sort. And, um, and, of course, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit we sort of see as the holy family. But, but uh, of course, God is one. So family, the idea of family may be a little stretched there. Nevertheless, God does call himself a father, and Jesus is the Son. So there is a familial relationship through which he describes himself to us. And I think the loyalty between father and son uh, is a profound uh, uh, point for us to focus on and begin thinking through. The loyalty that the Father has is a beautiful thing. If you read through the Scripture from beginning to end, you're going to find that the Father is loyal to many things, but He is loyal first, it seems, to His Word. When the, when the Father speaks a word, it comes to be. There is no word of the Lord that is spoken that is not going to occur. Last week I mentioned to you that... Um, in, in, the, uh, in, in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 1, where Gabriel speaks to Mary, he says to her that the, it is impossible for the Word of God to fail. 
the Greek, uh, tr the Greek is translated um, in, in our text a little more, um, what can I say, a little more smoothly. But essentially, in the, in the original, it says there's the word of God is, is well, how does somebody put it? The word of God is, is pregnant with power to perform itself. Somebody, somebody put it that way. I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was Daryl <laughs> in one sermon uh, to us years ago. The Word of God is pregnant with power to perform itself. It is impossible for it not to become reality. So God is loyal to His Word. When He speaks His Word, His Word will be. And so in the beginning, what was the first thing that we know that God said, at least from our, from our perspective? What was the first thing He said? Let there be light. You guys are brilliant. A, a plus for all of you Bible scholars out there. Let there be light, and light is, right? Light is. And, uh, and of course, in, in John's uh, gospel, the beginning uh, of John's gospel speaks about the light that goes out in the darkness. The darkness cannot overcome it. And uh, we had that at Jason's Bible study a week and a half ago. Uh, we talked about the light that the, that the darkness cannot overcome. And, uh, and so the Lord is loyal to his word, and the word he said was, let there be light. And so darkness will be overcome by, by, by light. You know, just ignore the elephants upstairs. It's Christmas time. They're having fun, right? Um, and so uh, now just a, a, little, um, a little aside. Uh, darkness and light are both created by the Lord and, in, and of themselves as, as uh, just, just sort of realities darkness and light are neither good nor nor bad they just it's just light and darkness but but we understand metaphorically that light stands for something and darkness for another at least in our experience we, we recognize darkness as being kind of cold and 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 um, you can't see and this and this fear involved with that but when the light comes warmth comes life and and uh, and, and liberty come in, in that place you can see where you're going you don't stumble and fall light represents goodness kindness and so forth so uh, just from a, um, a metaphor standpoint metaphorical standpoint god is committed to light and his promise is that light will overcome the darkness so here at christmas time as we consider the light of the world that came into our darkness it is the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise that darkness in terms of the metaphorical darkness will be utterly overcome so I want you to renew your confidence today that darkness will be overcome. Well, you say, how can I renew my confidence? Well, I say because God is loyal to his word. God is loyal to his word. And, uh, and there's a hope that comes with this. You say, uh, well, he said it, and I'm supposed to just believe that it happened. Well, no, he said it, but he, sh he, showed, he showed up when he said it. And uh, Jesus is the light of the world. He's the word of God made flesh. And so when we look at Christ and we consider Christ here at Christmas time, it is with great uh, relief, I think, that we're able to look at the story and say, see how God has fulfilled his promise, and therefore he will yet fulfill his promise, the ones that remain. So Isaiah chapter 9 gives us a promise from God. And there's some remarkable things about this promise that I just want you to see. You're familiar with these words. You've heard them in song. You've read them before. Every Christmas time, somebody talks about them. But there's some elements in here that are just worthy of our reflection. Maybe you know this already, but I'm going to tell it to you again because it's worthy of our reflection. These words are given to us by the prophet Isaiah, by God through the prophet Isaiah, some 700 years before Christ, maybe, maybe a little bit longer. It's uh, not quite certain when Isaiah would have prophesied this, but from the prophetic word, it seems to be that he is prophesying at a time shortly after the Assyrians from the north had come in and destroyed the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel, which would have been somewhere around 735 B.C., so 8th century B.C., this would have happened. We know that Isaiah lived during this time, of course, and we know that he's prophesying. We just don't know exactly when, whether it's prior to the Assyrian invasion or after the Assyrian invasion. If it's after the Assyrian invasion, there are some elements in this that are worthy of, of note uh, for a few reasons. History can actually teach us a few lessons that are beautiful. Anyway, let's read the word, then I'll come back to the commentary. Here we go. Uh, chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee 
of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What a passage. What a passage. Now we've come to hear some of those familiar words and they remind us of Christmas carols, don't they? Handel's Messiah ringing through my head right now. There's some powerful words, but let's think about them. Imagine you were part of Judah, where Isaiah would be speaking out this prophecy in the 8th century B.C. Assyria, the mighty world-conquering Assyrian army. They have swept down from the north, and they have overcome Samaria. They have taken the peoples captive. They have emptied the land of all of your relatives. And they have moved people into those places from all around the world, all around their Assyrian empire. They have replaced and displaced and moved people around. And the whole world is an upheaval. And the darkness of the Assyrian empire has stretched into your lands. As it turns out, Isaiah is prophesying somewhere between the rule of King Ahaz and King Hezekiah. We're not quite sure exactly when he speaks these words. Ahaz was not such a good king. We know him. Uh, you can read about him in, in the books of kings. Uh, but he wasn't, a, he wasn't a faithful guy. He didn't honor the Lord. He's the guy to whom uh, the prophecy was made about, about Emmanuel, about the virgin who would, who would be with child. And uh, that's just a couple chapters earlier in Isaiah chapter 7. But, but this particular point here, this... This passage could be speaking about Hezekiah, who would be a king who would bring great reform to the nation. Uh, he may have been a child at this time, just born at this time. Maybe uh, he was the new hope, the new light, and maybe there was some idea that Hezekiah would come. And he did, in fact, come and bring, and bring a great reform. Restored the worship of Yahweh. In, the, in, that, uh, in that country. And he may have been in some way a sort of pre-fulfillment of this promise. But what in the world have Naphtali and Zebulun got to do with this? What's Galilee got to do with this? This is the first mention of Galilee that we have in the scriptures. Galilee is famous for other reasons. Maybe you remember why Galilee is famous, right? Anybody know why? Come on, A pluses. I'm waiting for you guys to get your A pluses on this test, right? Galilee is where somebody preached. Who preached in Galilee? Well, actually, somebody even greater than John the Baptist is here. He preached in Galilee. He did miracles in Galilee. He raised people from the dead in Galilee. His name is? Absolutely. There's the A plus right there. No trick questions today. Jesus ministered in Galilee. In fact, it's where the majority of his ministry took place was in Galilee. His first ministry, his first, his first miracle was where? It was in Cana of Galilee. Why is Galilee important in the Old Testament? Why would it be that God would choose Galilee? Well, as it turns out, when the Assyrians came down from the north, the first territory that they would encounter as they came swooping into the promised land would be Zebulun and Naphtali and the regions around the Sea of Galilee. And that would be the first place that they would come with all of their might. 
and they would destroy. Their darkness would come and overcome every part of Jewish light that had been kept alive there. And the people would suffer greatly. And they would be treated with contempt. Why Zebulun and Naphtali? Why would that be the first place? Well, geographically, it's just the first entrance of the invading armies. You know, it's like when a hurricane comes, when it hits the land first. That's where it usually is the heaviest, isn't it? So the hurricane of the Assyrian army would come in and destroy first in Zebulun and Naphtali. But I wanted you to see something. Now, God is faithful to his word. Remember, he's loyal to his word. God speaks to his people. And there's a judgment that came upon the people because they had abandoned their covenant with God. God was loyal to them, but they weren't loyal to him. And so in keeping with his covenant that he had made with Moses, through Moses and with Joshua and the people on the two mountains side by side as they entered the promised land, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, the mountain of blessing and the mountain of curse. There in that place, God had told them that if they abandoned him, they should know as the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, they should know that if they are unfaithful in their covenant with him, he will break covenant with them also. And all the things that they had experienced, the joy of the covenant would be removed from them. And one of the things that would happen, they would be carried captive into foreign nations. And there they would learn to trust in God again. And so God, being faithful to his word, allowed the Assyrian army in the 8th century BC to come into the north of Israel and just decimate and destroy. After many, many warnings, God is faithful to his word. The word of God's judgment. And I think it's very important for us to recognize that the word of God's judgment is very, very much going to happen. Judgment comes upon the wicked. Judgment comes upon the unrighteous. Judgment comes upon the unrighteousness of man. Unrighteous deeds committed by unrighteous people in unrighteous ways. The judgment of the Lord will certainly come upon that. This is why it is good, O oh listener, to humble your heart and to confess your sin before the Lord now and to seek him while he may be found. For there will be a day of the judgment of the Lord when those who fall under the heavy hand of God's wrath will not escape. And the loyalty of God to his word is proven in this story that judgment came from the north. But here, my friends, is something that you need to remember. The judgment was not the end of the story. The judgment was not the end of the story, for even in the covenant that God made, that if they broke his covenant, wrath would come upon them. Inside of that was still a promise that if they returned again to the Lord from those places where they were, if they returned in their hearts to him, that he would renew his covenant with them again. And Jeremiah preaches about a new covenant that the Lord would make, not like the old covenant that was broken so many times, but God would make a new covenant. And surely this passage predicts the beginning of the new covenant. For in that place of darkness, Zebulun and Naphtali, from there the light would dawn, the light would come forth. You know that Jesus was raised in a town called Nazareth, right? Nazareth is where? It's in Galilee. It's out of Nazareth that Jesus comes. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Yes, 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 it can. The light of God can dawn a new day in Nazareth. Joy comes forth in Cana of Galilee where he turns water into wine. Ha ha! How many of you guys like wine? Don't raise your hands. Can you imagine the new wine? Imagine, just imagine when it's okay to drink the new wine that God pours for you in his sanctuary, in his table. What a day that's going to be. Joy and no headaches afterwards. Jesus turns water into wine and he comes to bring light in our darkness. Not darkness into our light, but light into our darkness. So the Lord prophesies through Isaiah 700 some odd years before Christ that the light will dawn in Galilee. In case you've ever wondered why Jesus needed to be revealed in Galilee, it's because God is loyal to his promise. God could have raised him anywhere. Could have raised him in a lot. Could have raised him in the wilderness, could have, like John the Baptist. Could have raised him in the Transjordan. Could have raised him anywhere. But no, no, raised him in Galilee because that's what he said he was going to do. 
And I think it's beautiful that the very people in the very place where God first poured out his wrath, they should be the ones upon whom he would first pour his grace. It was in that place. You know why? Because the Lord has also said that from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, there will be those who stand before him. And so it is that from Zebulun and Naphtali, from the regions of Galilee, there will be many who stand before the Lord in that day. For God is faithful and loyal to his word. I love this passage because it shows the darkness uh, is fleeing, the light is coming, and God multiplies the nation. There's a promise here. Now, let's ask, in the days of Hezekiah, did this happen? Yes and no. It happened a little bit. I mean, Hezekiah was the guy who, remember the, the army of the Assyrians encamped against Jerusalem. They besieged the city, and Hezekiah turned to the Lord and cried out for help, and God sent his angel in the middle of the night. The Bible tells us the angel destroyed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Wow. I mean, that's a, pretty amazing, that's a pretty amazing story, isn't it? It's so amazing that many scholars think it's just legend. May the Lord forgive those who have little faith, who don't want to believe what the Scripture says as it says it, because it just couldn't possibly be. Well, I choose to believe. I'm just one of those naive guys who takes it at face value. <laughs> if it says that the angel of the Lord slew 185,000 Assyrians, then I'm going to believe it until the Lord shows me something different. For whatever it's worth, light was definitely there and overcame the darkness in Hezekiah's day, and there was great rejoicing. And they did go out, and they did despoil the enemy. So uh, in some ways, this was fulfilled. But I think it is fulfilled much more in Jesus, don't you? You've multiplied the nation and increased its joy. I mean, the nation of Israel wasn't as such multiplied in terms of the number of of the natural offspring of Abraham. But doesn't the Bible say that we are the offspring of Abraham who are children of Abraham by faith? Yes. Doesn't the Bible say that we have become like the sand? I mean, we, the, the Gentiles are like the sand of the seashore. We, we are the offspring of Abraham because Abraham is our father through faith. Christ has made, he's broken down the barrier wall between us and them. And God's made us like, like Isaac, the child of the promise. So, You've multiplied the nation. Absolutely he has. In Christ, this seems to be much greater fulfillment. You've increased its joy. I mean, <laughs> talk about joy. Joy to the world. We sang it this morning. There's, a, it, there's a, a joy which we possess, which the world cannot understand. It's a joy in the midst of sorrow. Now, maybe you haven't experienced it, but there are many who have experienced the joy of the Lord in the most trying of times. I read a story uh, when I was preparing for this about a Chinese brother in 1989 told his story at the Lausanne uh, 2 uh, conference in, uh, in Manila, the, the big Christian conference. Uh, he, he spoke and he told a story about his imprisonment and how they had, they had locked him away in a dungeon deep, deep uh, beneath, the, beneath the earth. And there he, he waded through human feces. His job was to clean out sewers. And uh, this Christian man, and he Instead of losing his mind and losing his hope, he was filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit in that place and sang, uh, what's that song? He walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. Christian brother who somehow knew that old Christian hymn, singing that song and he sang it so often and so loud that eventually his captors, knowing that they couldn't break him, they released him. And he traveled all throughout China ministering the gospel in every village that he went to the whole village would get saved that's within our lifetime my friends the joy the joy like those who are dividing the spoil the joy the joy of the lord which is our strength is our portion this is what christ has come to give us and there's a joy that is not limited to our resources or lack thereof it's not limited to our to our uh, our, our experience it's not limited to to, to our, our 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 senses our feelings our anxieties depressions it's not limited there's a joy that christ gives which supersedes all other human experience this is what he's done in christ and and we are like those who divide the spoil what spoil Everything the enemy stole from you, God wants to give it back. 
not just what he stole from you, but what he stole from your neighbor. Take a look at your neighbor. No, God, God wants to restore to them what the devil stole from them. And we, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, get to be the warriors who go out and battle on behalf of our brothers and sisters, on those around us. How do, we, how do we war? We war in the spirit. We war through prayer. We war through having our family altar on Monday night and letting the light shine in our little home that then translates. When somebody drives by, somehow they see it. They see, oh, there's a light in that house. There's a light in that house. Next thing you know, the whole neighborhood's a light. And slowly but surely, we begin to take back the ground that the devil stole from us, and we despoil the enemy. How? Through the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. We don't have time for all of this, but there's a, uh, there's a child that's born in this passage, a son that's given. Isn't it amazing that God says, I can go into the midst of the worst, the worst, uh, the most powerful place the enemy has, right in the very center of his diabolical plans. And I can bring my deliverance through a child. The devil's never been a match for God. For to us, a child is born, a son is given. There's relationship here, isn't there? A son is given. A son. Whose son? Well, it's God's son. But in, for, for these Jewish people, it's their son also. Jesus is a son of, of Israel. There's a familial relationship here. It's not, we're going to bring a wash ashore in, and they're going to heal the nation. No, I'm going to raise up one of your own, and healing will come from within. You're not going to be governed by a foreign power. There's going to be a government that comes from within. And the, and the metaphor of this is so powerful. Is it not that we are to be ruled not by the laws of men, but by the indwelling Holy Spirit who speaks to us from inside, a son is given. It is a, there's a, there's a, a bond in that relationship. There's a love in that relationship so that when the son begins to govern you, you say, oh, yes, I'm so proud of you. Look, it's my son. He's, in the, he's ruling. This is, this is the, 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 the strange, the strange uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mixture of ideas that he is both a father and he is also a son to us. Unto you a son is given. I think that the, just so that you don't think I'm preaching heresy here, let's try and stay on this point here for just a minute. The idea is that Christ changes us from the inside so that we're not led like captives by someone who is more powerful, but we are shaped by a love that is undeniable. Prohibition has some power. Power to, to control the behavior of individuals. But everybody knows that laws have no power over our choices in the heart. The governments that we establish, they are limited. They are limited to reward and prohibition. And they're all external. Morality is a matter of the heart. It cannot be governed from outside. And we all know that the problem with mankind is not that we don't have enough laws, but that we don't want to follow them. Listen, we didn't want to follow when there was only one law. You can have everything you want, just don't eat that. It wasn't actually an apple, but, you know, we've got this right here. Is a, huh. One law. It wasn't the fact that we had laws. It was the fact that we can't, we, can't, we can't govern from the outside in. We've got to govern from the inside out. And God has sent his light to shine in the midst of the darkness, but it starts right in the heart of the darkness. 
<laughs> Tara's getting excited. She's got something. <laughs> Hold on to it. Hold on to it. Don't lose it. Because I'll give you an opportunity in a minute. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. I'm looking at these words, these names, these throne names they're called uh, for, for our Lord and our Christ. The son who is given to us, who's going to be raised up amongst us, who's going to know us intimately and be acquainted with our weaknesses, although he himself will be without sin. This one is going to be raised up, who is going to be able to counsel us in any situation because he understands and he empathizes. He knows where we're at. There is no sin with which we are tempted, with which he was not first tempted also. And he did not stumble. And he is able to show us the way out. He is a counselor of note. He is the wisest of all wise. He is wonderful counselor. And the word wonderful there means miracle working. He's the miracle working counselor. He's not just one who can counsel you to make good decisions, but he can work miracles and transform things and restore things. He can bring dead things back to life. I just want to put up a big placard and say, vote for Jesus. <laughs> but we don't need to vote for him. He doesn't need to win the popular vote. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He is this son who is given. And I am so excited about him being our king. I'm so excited about that. Wonderful counselor, miracle working, wise man. <laughs> Mighty God, that means the warrior God. The word might means a God of war. He is a God who is able to perform great and powerful things. And he comes in and he is undefeatable. What's the word? Indefatigable, right? Is that what that means? Undefeatable. Inconceivable. Wrong movie, that's right. He is the everlasting father. Some would like to suggest that that's maybe... Uh, some sort of claim for deity. I think the deity claim is already in the mighty God portion. That's, that's the deity claim. The everlasting father is more of a, uh, a reference to relationship where he is, you know, of course, just a, a minute ago, I said he's kind of like a son in that it's something we can be proud of because it comes up from within us and grows up around us and we can see him. But he's also a father in that he is the one to whom we all submit in the, in the, in the hierarchy of family. He's, he's the everlasting father, not the everlasting emperor. You understand? He's an everlasting father. So our relationship with him in the hierarchy of relationship, he's, he's being displayed as a father. That's, there's no more powerful uh, uh, definition of his, of, his, of his love than that he should be seen in that role. And this is, of course, is, this is the Messiah who's being demonstrated in this way. And it doesn't mean that the father and the son are the same person. They are the same God. So God is three persons. He is, yeah, the mystery of the Trinity. Hey, how do we just, I'm not going to get hung up on that right now, but equal, equally God, but each one unique. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, unique in their person. So the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, yet the Father and the Son, the Son is in the Father, and the Father is in the Son. Anyway, <laughs> he is everlasting. He's never changing. He's the kind, of, the kind of ruler that we want, not one who has to experiment over time to get things better, and then if we don't like him after four years, we can dismiss him. This is everlasting. And he's the prince of peace. I don't have time to talk about that, but I think peace means something to each of us. Maybe there's a, a, a definition of peace that's important to you. I want you to know that Christ is all of these things. Each one of us could define peace a little differently. But we all know what peace is, and we all know what peace is not. And Christ is peace. The increase of his government and that peace, there will be no end. Big government is good, my friends, just not here.
Big government is good. Big God. Big government. Yeah. Eternally growing. 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 And it's totally trustworthy. Because there is no shadow of turning with God. There's no, there's no compromise with God. There's no corruption with God. He is incorruptible. I love this promise. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. On the throne of David is just a fulfilled promise in Christ because as we know through the line of, of, of Joseph, Jesus' dad, <laughs> he's directly, directly related. He's, he's, he's in the line of kings. And through Mary, his mom, he's also related to David. There's a beautiful, there's a beautiful connection there. He is the rightful heir to the throne of David. So God fulfills his promise and is loyal to his word. And this, this promise we see fulfilled beautifully in Christ. And yet it is also to be fulfilled. And I think this is the part that I wanted to leave you guys with today is this loyalty issue. God has promised something and it has not yet happened. He has promised that Christ will return. He has promised that he will restore all, all uh, 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 goodness. He, he has promised that evil will be, will be punished and destroyed forever. These things have not yet happened, but they will, my friends. God is faithful to his word then. He's faithful to his word now and he will fulfill what he has promised. And so I want to bring you this, this admonition today. Don't you become disloyal to the Lord in your waiting for his loyalty to be proven. He has already proven his loyalty time and time again. And there are enough visible proofs for his loyalty here in the pages of Scripture to convince me. I don't know what you guys might need, but for me, the more I read Scripture, the more I see the fulfillment of God. And it convinces me time and time again. I find it hard to read passages like this without bursting into tears and seeing, God, you are so good. Look at what you've done. But maybe you need the promises of God in your personal life to be fulfilled in some way or another. And maybe as you're waiting for those personal promises to be fulfilled, you're growing weary. You're growing tired. You're growing to the point where doubt is starting to take a little bit more, uh, a little more territory in your heart. You're starting to think, well, maybe God isn't real. Maybe all these things weren't actually a promise. When it comes to personal things, I think that's where we run into, into a lot of opportunity for doubt. Some of you have had some real trials significant issues that took place in your life that make you doubt whether or not God was even there. If God was real, why did he let this happen to me? Surely God, if God said he loved me, why would this take place? Why would I lose that family member? Or why would this, why would this uh, relationship be so broken? Or why would that, that business enterprise fail when God clearly gave me, I thought he was clearly giving me directions to do this or that. Why did this sickness come upon my family member or upon me? Why am I carrying all of this? If God was truly real, surely he would deal with this. Is he not the God of promise and the God who fulfills his promise? But loyalty, my friends, it's taken many years to, to show the benefits of the loyalty. How long will you be loyal? Well, I say that loyalty comes from relationship. If you don't have relationship, you can't have loyalty. If you don't know the person to whom you're being loyal, then loyalty certainly can be challenged. But if you know somebody and you know their, their heart, you know their motive, then sometimes their actions, which may appear to be a little off, a little, off, a little different, you have this place where you give them the benefit of the doubt. You kind of say, well, I don't understand why they did that. I might not have done it that way, but I'm loyal to the, that friendship because I know that that person has a reputation. They know have, they have a, they have a, there's a track record there. They've, they've proven themselves to be true and trustworthy and reliable. So how do, we, how do we get to the place where we don't give up? Well, I think we've got to stay close in relationship. It took, it took 700 years for Isaiah's word to be fulfilled in Christ. 700 years. Unto us a child is born, a son is given. 700 years. 
In other words, nobody alive at the time that the word was given when the time of the word was fulfilled. No, nobody. Nobody lives that long. Unless you were like, you know, Melchizedek. I mean, uh, was it Methuselah? Those other guys. Nobody lives that long. Could you hold out on loyalty even though the proof of the loyalty won't come until after you're dead? Depends on the relationship, doesn't it? I want to remind you that God is faithful. And I want to exhort you and encourage you today and say, hold fast to the Lord and to his word. And do not become disloyal in your hearts and begin to follow other things. The children of Israel give us a profound example of disloyalty. They're delivered from Egypt through the Red Sea. They see the cloud uh, 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 by day and the fire by night. God gives them, uh, he gives them food in the wilderness and water and so forth. And what do they do? They worship a golden calf. Because they can't believe that the God who just delivered them would still continue to be with them. For 40 days. <laughs> Couldn't believe for 40 days. God wants us to be loyal, my friends. And he invites us into the strange place where his loyalty is demanded of us if we are to see the goodness of the Lord. But yet I tell you that the goodness of the Lord is evident in your life if you can open up your eyes and look around. It may not be in the place that you were looking for. It may not be in that one thing or that two, those two things or maybe that important thing that you've got laid out before him that you say, well, unless you can do this, I just simply won't believe in you, Jesus. I want you to know that if you open up your eyes and you look around, you'll see the evidence of his goodness everywhere. It's everywhere, all over your life, just like the song says. So hold fast. In that thing that is the temptation for you to give up, hold fast and don't let go. Jesus is faithful. He is faithful. I wanted to share with you a story of loyalty, but I've run out of time. And I know Tara's just bursting at the seams with something. Is it still there? Is it still bursting? You wrote it down. Okay, Tara. Well, come on. You want to stand up right there and just tell everybody? Go ahead. You want to use the mic? Yeah, come on up. Yeah, we're actually not. I, um, I just saw something during worship that I really wanted to share because of what Eric was saying. Um, so during worship, I saw um, a match in my hand, and the match was evidently in everybody's hand. And it was one of those old-fashioned matches with the self-lighting tips that you can just kind of, you know, rub against yeah, um, something, yeah, something that, <laughs> that it lights. And um, as we light our match... We have to protect it and care for it and nurture it or else like the wind will come by and blow it out. Mm. And that the light in that was the um, was our relationship with Jesus. And we need to care for it and protect it. It comes from inside, you know, like you were saying, like the sun, the gift, it, it's on the inside, but it's about relationship. Mm -hmm. And I know at times in my life I have like been in that place, like God, where are you? Are you even real? Are you here? Um, but as we nurture, that light gets bigger. That light gets bigger. We know who Jesus is, and we're solid in our foundation, and other people see that light, and other people need to see that light. And it is the love of who Jesus is inside us that pours out of us. And I just, like Jesus kept saying during worship, just tell them, just tell them. And I'm like, tell them what? Like, I'm, I'm not even sure I'm explaining this right. But as we sit at the feet of Jesus and receive the love of the Father for us. We're able to love and be the light for other people Amen. because you guys, they need it. Other people need it and we need it. We need to heal. We need to know who we are and who Jesus is to us as we pour out to others, but like protect that light that's within you. Amen. Protect it and nurture it so that it grows in Amen. Jesus' name. Thank you, Tara. Thank you. Amen, yeah. So uh, I'm glad you said all that because it just, it just reminded me of the practical application of my sermon, which we need, by the way. <laughs> Always need a practical application. So here's what I thought. Imagine now you're living in Galilee. And it's after the return from exile. So, we, you know, biblical history time. It's uh, uh, Daniel. That whole story has happened. Ezra and Nehemiah, that's happened. The temple's been rebuilt in Jerusalem. And there's a small temple now in a small city that's starting to be repopulated. It's the, you know, you've, you've now gone through the, the, the Hasmonean, uh, uh, sort of the, the Maccabee revolt, the Hasmonean kings. The, and, now, and now you're, it's, it's, 
You've been overthrown by, by Rome. You're living in Galilee. And, um, and uh, you might be thinking, what a waste of time. This old Galilean backwater. You know, we're, we're under the thumb of, of, of Rome, and, and it's all through. We, we have a king, Herod, Antipas, but, you know, he's building his mansions in Severus, and, 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 uh, and, he's, and he's giving all the wealth to Tyre and Sidon, and, um, you know, we're just fishermen in Galilee. And what's the point of all of this? But there's a prophetic word in Isaiah that mentions you by name. There's a prophetic word that says, O Galilee of the nations, the light's going to dawn in you. And, uh, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you're in your boat and you're fishing along with your dad and your brother. And the light of the world steps on the shore. I wonder if God has a word for Hyannis. You know, I mean, it's not like Jesus is going to come from a little town in Massachusetts and, you know, return to the world, right? I mean, he's going to return like he went up. He went up in the clouds. He's going to return in the clouds. So we, we don't have a kind of a Galilean thing going on here. But maybe you feel like those guys might have. That maybe you amount to nothing at all, but maybe also you're a part of God's great plan. And maybe there's a fulfillment that could come in your day. What do you do if you're the generation before Zebedee and his sons? What if you're the generation that's building the synagogue in Capernaum? And just keeping this, the synagogue open. What if you're that generation that's continuing to t teach their children the Torah? Because at some point, guys, just want you to know that at some point in Galilee, somewhere in Galilee, the, the light's going to shine. Galilee of the nations, God's got a global plan that's going to be birthed right out of Galilee. Don't know how it happens, but it's going to come out of here. There's a, there's a power in prophetic expectation, which I don't think we should underestimate. There was an expectation in that little town, wherever Mary was, when the, the angel Gabriel came to her. I think she might have been in Galilee. Because I think Joseph came from Nazareth and went back to Nazareth. The, the birth in Bethlehem was, was, was because God had prophesied that, that Bethlehem would be the place where Christ would come, out of Bethlehem. But then he'd return to Nazareth. So I think that there was this expectation somewhere in the Galilean hills that something was going to happen out of Galilee. And there was just that, you know what that does? That expectation makes us raise our children in a certain way. Mary's parents raised her to be faithful to the Lord and keep herself from sexual sin because, you know what, maybe God will use you. And guess what God did? He used her. Do you think that God has an expectation for Hyannis? Well, I do. I'm absolutely convinced he does. Because in Revelation chapter 7, verse 19, the Bible says that from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, they stand before the Lord, a multitude, worshiping and singing, saying, Holy is the one, the, the, the Lamb that was slain. That multitude is made up from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And I'd like to say, most likely, most likely, it's generational. Which means Hyannis in Cape Cod need to have representatives in that crowd. There's a prophetic word, a prophetic expectation that there will be those from Hyannis on that day. And they will stand there. And the Lord may actually say, would all the representatives from Hyannis please stand? And I know some of you live in Sandwich, and some of you live in East Ham, and some of you live in this and that. When he calls out Hyannis, I need you all to stand, okay? Just, yeah. <laughs> just all stand. 
But there's going to come a day, my friends, when we do represent the Lord. And right now, the fire that burns in our hearts needs to burn out there as well. Just like, just like you said, Tara, strike the match and protect that match and keep that flame because it's going to set ablaze a whole bunch of other hearts. We're going to set ablaze a whole bunch of other hearts, and we will all stand on that day before the Lord and say, Yeah, we may not have amounted to much in terms of reaching the whole entire world, but we met you, O Lord, and we brought you in our community, and here are these, the children the Lord has given us. And so it is that we will set our hope on this, that the prophetic word of the Lord will be fulfilled. And I am not so, grand, so big in my mind as to think that we'll just be, you know, great name known by every household across the world. No, no. I know it's much better that we don't have that. But I do want us to be on point, and I do want us to be on purpose, and I do want us to reach our community right now, right here. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your prophetic word over our lives. Thank you, Lord, that we are not just accidental. We're not just here as uh, the, next, the next iteration of, of the Big Bang. We are fashioned and formed by you beautifully and wonderfully, made and fashioned for your purposes. We've been redeemed. We've been made a holy people, a royal priesthood. We've been given a purpose to worship you eternally, Lord, and to shine your light in this darkness right now until the light dawns and the darkness is no more. So, Father, we pray that you would stir up our hearts with a loyalty that we've never experienced before, that we would be that we would have unbending knee to the things of the world and we would bend our knee to you and to you alone. Pour out your grace upon us, Lord, that we may believe that you are loyal to your word and that your, your word will come to pass. And may we be effective in our communication of the gospel for your name's sake. Amen.